So many of the poems emerge from that question. What kind of attention am I saying that the military wife deserves? And of course, I immediately, as I asked that question of myself, knew some people would say, none. They don't deserve it. They're not the ones fighting the war. Um, they know what they're signing up for. And I feel like I want to push back against those ideas. From Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, this is Sound Effect. Here's your host, Megan Hayes. John DeBro is a prize-winning poet who has authored six books and has been published in the New York Times Magazine, Southern Review, and American Life and Poetry, among many others. She's on our campus as a keynote speaker and workshop facilitator as part of a reading, film, and discussion series presented by Appalachian and sponsored by the National Endowment for the Humanities. The series emphasizes the role of Western North Carolina and its people and encourages veterans and their families to explore the ways stories help us construct our understandings of war and its myriad and often and ambiguous effects. John DeBro's most recent collection of poems is Dots and Dashes, which, along with her collection entitled Stateside, which was published in 2010, examined her own experiences as a Navy wife looking at the before, during, and after of her husband's deployment. Her perspective and work bring voice to being married to the military, including coping with the actions of spouses in the military and problems associated with social class. The daughter of American diplomats, Jean de Bro was born in Italy and grew up in Yugoslavia, Zaire, Poland, Belgium, Austria, and the United States. Her husband is a career military officer. She earned a BA in The Great Books from St. John's College, an MFA from the University of Maryland, and a PhD from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. She is currently Associate Professor of Creative Writing at the University of North Texas and consults and mentors poets at many ages and all stages of development. John DeBro, welcome to Appalachian State University, and welcome to Sound Effect. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you being here today. I'd like to start with a few general Ask the Poet questions, sure. if I could. Um, you know, I think many people recall being assigned to write poetry in grade school or high school. Um, I remember mine being particularly terrible and the experience being a little painful. But do you recall writing your first poem? I, I do. I was 11. And for some reason, I wrote a poem about seagulls. I have no idea why. I don't care about seagulls. I don't really like seagulls. <laughs> but I remember writing it and just finding that it felt really good to write it and that I didn't quite understand when I finished what was this thing I had made. And that feeling stuck with me. And so years later, I sort of wrote um, poetry as a, as a teenager. Then I went to college and Sort of in my early 20s, I, uh, I had a terrible breakup, actually, with the man who eventually became my husband. And um, in the aftermath of that tragedy, I began to write poems again. And within about a year, I remember calling my parents and saying, I have this really crazy idea. I want to go to grad school and be a poet. And much to their credit, they said, okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So... Um what are your most powerful memories of being inspired by words? Well, I spent a large portion of my childhood in communist Poland. And one of the things you learn um, growing up in a totalitarian regime is that the arts really matter. Mm -hmm. And so seeing how much art forms like poetry and painting and music and theater were a daily part of people's lives in Poland made an indelible impression on me. It was always clear to me that the arts could be life-changing and life-saving. And so, you know, 
Poetry is revered in Poland. In every city, in every town square across Poland, there's a street or a statue or a school or a train station named after the great um, Polish romantic poet Adam Mickiewicz. And when you see that kind of impact that a romantic poet who's long dead can still have on a people, you realize, okay, this is something that isn't um, frivolous. It's not a hobby. It's not a diversion. It really means a great deal to people. And so I always knew that I was going to be in the arts. It just took me a little while to figure out that I was going to be a poet. Mm. As someone who mentors other writers and poets, um, can you just share a little bit of advice for the, the budding poets or writers who might be listening? Sure. You know, you can do a lot of study on your own. But there's a certain point at which you really need guidance and mentorship. And so what I would recommend is you don't have to go to grad school um, to get a degree in, in creative writing, but you do need to find somebody who's further down the road to help you get to where you want to go. Somebody who's going to teach you how to revise, how to be open to critique, uh, how to find books that are going to inform your work in really positive ways. You need to find that person because otherwise, um, maybe you'll never get to where you want to be, but certainly it will take you a very long time to get to the, the writer that you have as a vision in your head. Yeah. Um, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about um, your work in particular, the two uh, texts, Stateside and, and Dots and Dashes. Um, and this is kind of a personal question, I think, for me, because one of the most influential people in my growing up life was a poet. She was a haiku poet. Mm. She passed away last month. Um, her name was Marlene Mountain. She did some drawing. She did some painting. But um, even her visual art was centered on word choice, mm. and, you know, around one word and, and insisting that that reader or that viewer really mercilessly examine the word and all of the impact and connotations of those words. And she was a raging feminist, literally raging. <laughs> uh, and, you know, while the subject matter of your work is really different from hers, I, in my mind, I kept relating the two. And I think some of that is because, you know, just my personal experience with her recent death, but also she was reacting or responding to a world that was constructed by men. Yeah. And, um, and in a lot of ways, a lot of the violence, whether intentional or unintentional, it was constructed by men. And as I read your work, I feel something similar. This depiction of the military wife that we see in popular culture and entertainment, it, it largely seems to be presented through the lens of, or at least centered around the experience of the soldier. And so I wonder if you could talk about the importance of including that perspective of, of the woman. Yeah, that's such a great question. I, I feel that stateside and Dots and Dashes are feminist texts. When I first began to write Stateside, usually when I start to work on a book of poems, the first thing I do is research. I want to see what else has been written on the subject, not just in terms of other poetry, but historiography, memoir, anything like that. And so when I first started thinking about, well, what would it be like to write a book of poems about the experience of being a military wife? I went and read the literature. And what I realized very quickly was that there were plenty of self-help books. There were diaries and other kinds of personal accounts, but there weren't really any texts that I saw as literary that spoke deeply about the military wife experience. And one of the things that I think literature does is it draws our attention to things that are wor worthy of artistic 
serious attention. And the fact that a military spouse experience had never been depicted in a literary text told me that people didn't think this was a subject that was worthy of serious literary treatment. And the only really wonderful example of a military spouse is Penelope from Homer's The Odyssey. And I thought more and more about that, and I thought, well, huh, The Odyssey's kind of an old book. (laughs) Maybe it's time to tell this story again. And so that's where the book really began, was with this concern and anxiety about what would it mean to to claim a space in literature for this figure? Um, And so many of the poems emerge from that question. What kind of attention am I saying that the military wife deserves? And of course, I immediately, as I asked that question of myself, knew some people would say, none. They don't deserve it. They're not the ones fighting the war. Um, They know what they're signing up for. Uh, And I feel like I want to push back against those ideas that, yes, maybe military spouses have some idea when they enter a marriage with somebody who's active duty of what they're getting into. But the fact is they don't get paid for their work. they don't get ribbons or uh, nice pieces of shiny metal on their collars. And so their service isn't recognized in, in the same way. And that's understandable, but maybe it hasn't been sufficiently recognized, period. And so I knew that I was sort of entering a fraught space where there would perhaps be concern that I was talking about this. And also, there's a kind of culture still in the military that even voicing the idea that being in a military marriage is difficult Mm. can be seen as unpatriotic. Wow. That's really interesting because um, right before we came in here, uh, Troy Tuttle and I were just talking about this. So he's he's our creative director and also a veteran, a military veteran. And, um, you know, that this is something that I think from my experience, not being someone who's from a military family and, and talking with Troy, who's a veteran, uh, we were kind of kicking this back and forth and discussing the concept of how the title veteran is one that really is shared by the family um, because the family goes to war when the soldier does, even though the experiences are very different. Um, So I guess part of what we wanted to ask you is, is is there more that we can do in our communities to recognize and value the experience of the military family and the aftermath of war that they go through? Because it's almost like the war continues in some ways, maybe a lot of ways. Well, I think one of the challenges now is that a lot of military families aren't necessarily living on bases. And so sometimes those families become somewhat invisible. If you live on a base, then it's sort of understood the role that everyone is playing. The, the spouses who are going through the commissary by themselves, you understand that, that the active duty service member is somewhere else and perhaps overseas deployed. But when you're a military spouse and you're living in a community where there aren't many other military spouses, it's very easy for people to just entirely forget what you might be going through on a day-to-day basis, even just the isolation. And so I think just being more aware and checking in with those families that you know have a loved one overseas can be a thoughtful gesture. Let's take a minute and and read a few poems, sure. if you would. Um, there are some that, that we selected that we wanted to ask you about in particular. I was wondering if you would mind maybe starting with The Much Tattooed Sailor? Yeah. Sure. So this poem initially began as a kind of writing prompt The Library of Congress did uh, this event, I think it was during an 
one April, which is National Poetry Month. And they they had various poets look at the holdings of, I guess, the National Archives and pick out an item that they wanted to write about. And so I was really interested in these photographs taken during World War II. There was a there were a number of really brilliant photographers, professional photographers, who during World War II worked usually for the Army or the Navy to chronicle the war. And so this poem is inspired by a photo that was taken by Charles Fenno Jacobs, who's known for his Time Life photographs. It was taken in December 1944, and the photograph is called Much Tattooed Sailor Aboard the USS New Jersey, and that's also the title of the poem. And the poem is in three parts. One. Squint a little, and that's my husband in the photograph, the sailor on the left, the one wearing a rose composed of ink, and the little Bo Peep who stands before a tiny setting sun, and the blur on his forearm, which might be a boat, while the sailor on the right is leaning in, his fingers touching the other man's skin, tracing what looks like the top of an anchor or the intricate hilt of a sword, perhaps wiping blood from the artful laceration. In his other hand, something crumpled, his cap, I think, or a cloth to shine brass, lights on a bulkhead, fittings and fixtures. Because, let's not forget this picture must be posed. The men interrupted, mops laid down, ropes left uncoiled, or else on a smoke break, Zippo and Lucky Strikes put aside. No war for a moment, only the men bent at beautiful angles, a classical composition, this contrast of bodies and dungarees, denim gone black, and their shoulders full of shadow. Although, on second thought, how effortless this scene, both of them gazing toward a half-seen tattoo, so that we too lean in, trying to make out the design on the bicep, close enough we can almost smell the erotic salt of them and the oil of machinery, which is of course the point. As when in a poem, I call the cruiser's engine a pulse inside my palm, or describe my husband's uniform, ask him to repeat the litany of ships and billets, how one deployment he sliced himself on a piece of pipe, and how the cut refused to shut for months. Hold still, I tell him. I need to get the exquisite outline of your scar. 2. My husband, in his new ink, the blade of his shoulder, now unfamiliar for its anchor, is a text I visit with my fingers. Overseas, an artist has tattooed him with the start of a tiger. Three sittings I'm told it will take to make the teeth glisten. Still healing, he turns his back to me in the bedroom and says, it hurts. And waiting for my response, he anticipates a touch that says, you do this to yourself. It's always like this for our bodies. I, too, have a bramble of blackberry and blossom on my back. What postcard from another place? What permanence? What coiled machine like a clicking pen? For my husband, each design introduces some new story. A mermaid's turquoise tail, a ship sinking on his arm. Come home, he would, no matter what, be strange. Consider the tiger half-finished, leaf and shadow. My husband as well to me is a bare contour, a sketch that takes the shape of intimacy. He's also crouched in the tall leaves of my thinking, his eyes waiting to be shaded in. Three. 
Even in war, the artist's narrow seeing finds an aperture to let in light across the injuries of skin. Our appetite is keen, Sontag says, for pictures of bodies held in pain, elemental satisfactions. The swallow flitting on a collarbone is still a wound, however deliberate in its position. The symbolism clear, that like birds we return to violated shores, that we love ourselves for flinching, that we love ourselves more when we refuse to look away from the hurt a needle makes, the first fine point of red. Wow, thank you. There's another one that to me almost um, feels, uh, well, I don't know, maybe I don't mind. Would you mind just reading reading Drone? Sure. Maybe we'll... So this poem came from an episode of 60 Minutes. Um, I was watching 60 Minutes, uh, a, a section of, of the show, which was titled Drones Over America. And the person who, the expert who was talking about the future use of drones said that, you know, he was rattling off a list of possible uses for drones. And in the middle of that list, um, the expert said, we will see small drones that deliver wedding cakes. And I thought, oh my God, what an amazing image. And so that's where this poem began. And so that's the epigraph for the poem. So this is drone. A bee, a buzz, a monotone, a drone that hummingbirds across a town, a drawler, a crawler of cities, on an instrument, a string that moans, drone of panoramic picks, little clicks emitted in the sky, sleek robotic fly that whirs its wings, bringer of things that blast and boom, to pass away, drag out, as if all living plays slow-mo, gizmo that spins through smoke to the burning trees below, Device at the meltdown, ghost in the walls and hills and halls of the capital, storm drone and parrot, air dog gone aerial, a body that's flown remote by a land-bound god, finder of those who would stay unfound, subject of research, searcher of subjects, lurcher that jets a box of sugared tears to the church in the nick of time to shoot the vows, rest the guests from their facelessness, zoom toward the bride and groom, drone of white noise and beak unveiled as if to speak now and forever hold the peace. Yeah, I think the reason that, that I liked the idea of hearing those two next to each other is because um, so much of your work, I think, brings significance to um, things that for those of us that exist solely in civilian life, um, significance that, that never even occurred to me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, lots of those conversations about, oh, drones are going to deliver wedding cakes are going to deliver, you know, your yeah. packages, they're going to, you know, deliver pizzas. I work with photographers who use drones. And so in our minds, we think about drones in relation to research and photography. Mm-hmm. Tattoos, I feel like are, you know, they're very common, I think now more so with with our generation than, than with older generations. And so it's something that we have in common, and yet they're so personal yeah. and hold very different significance. So they can also set us up part in a way while bringing us together. And it just made me think if maybe the details of a story or a photograph um, become more significant for someone who feels like at any time 
that goodbye or that kiss or that meal that they just shared with their loved one could be the last one. And, and I guess I wonder, with that hovering in your mind, um, do you feel like those details are sharper or stronger to someone who might be living with that kind of hovering sense of impending loss? I think it's possible. Um, when I first was working on stateside, part of the motivation for writing that first book was that my husband, who's um, career Navy, it looked like he was going to be sent on something called an individual augmentation. At the time um, in our war in Iraq, there was a significant shortage, um, particularly in the Army. And so people from other branches, particularly the Navy, were filling in. And often they were administrative positions. But when my husband was told he might be sent on an individual augmentation, it looked like he was going to be sent to Afghanistan or Iraq. And all of a sudden, this kind of safe perimeter that I'd established around the idea of our marriage completely fell apart because I'd sort of come to terms with the idea of him being on a ship. But I hadn't come to terms with the idea of him being in country. And so suddenly I was vi visualizing him in a Kevlar vest and, you know, imagining him as a diff doing a different kind of service than the one that I'd sort of figured out how to make sense of. And so I had a complete meltdown. And that was how I started writing the poems, was from this place of panic. And what I later learned was something called anticipatory grief. And this is the kind of grief that you engage in where you um, are grieving for the things that you could imagine might happen in the future. So of course, because I have a good imagination, I was imagining the worst. Um, as it turned out, he never went on that individual augmentation, which is very typical of military life. There's an old um, Yiddish expression, when, when man plans, God laughs. <laughs> yeah. And that's really the experience of being married to the military. You learn very quickly not to believe that anything is going to happen until it's actually happening. Um, so you, you don't really decide that a deployment is really going to happen until that deployment begins. You don't decide that shore leave is going to happen until it happens. Because to do otherwise is to constantly exist in a state of disappointment or panic or um, just deep abiding fear. Oh, yeah. If you wouldn't mind reading um, a couple poems out of Stateside... I'd love to hear them. Um, one in particular, um, Penelope considers a new do. Yeah, so as I said before, Penelope was one of the, the figures who, who hovered over a stateside. She was this impossible role model. There's no way that any military wife can really live up to Penelope. She, she's alone for 20 years holding down the fort, fending off dozens, well, hundreds of suitors who are all trying to marry her because they're convinced that Odysseus is dead. Um, so she's, she's perfectly chased for 20 years. She maintains the island and raises a, a son by herself. Uh, she's incredibly strong and independent. And she doesn't just do it for a few years. She does it for two decades. You know, the first decade, Odysseus is off fighting the war and in Troy. And then the second decade, he's trying to get back to Penelope. That's a long time to wait for a husband who you're not sure is still alive. And so she was really this guiding figure over the book. In some ways, somebody I was pushing against because I don't want to be Penelope. I imagined Penelope in various contemporary situations. 
I wasn't saying that I was a Penelope, but I was just sort of imagining what would Penelope do in this current era of war. So this is Penelope considers a new do. The magazines declare, don't ever cut your hair just after breaking up. So what if he's been absent nearly 20 years? Fact is, each day the loss feels new, the shears still biting as the first time they'd been honed. Looks like he's never coming back. You've moaned for two decades about the shroud of bangs which veils your face, the way your ponytail hangs down your back like a ragged piece of rope. Your follicles have given up all hope of hair that moves, of Farrah Fawcett's flip, Meg Ryan's shag, or anything so hip as the pixie, the asymmetric bob. Go see the stylist to the stars and sob your story out, that endless Trojan war, those gods. Andre has heard it all before. He'll trim away dead ends so razor fast. Chop, chop, snip, snip. You'll wonder why the past cannot be sliced so easily away or dyed a golden shade to hide the gray. I really love that poem because of the, um, because it's about your haircut. (laughs) (laughs) So without knowing any of the backstory about Penelope and her inspiration for this, I keep thinking of all the bad haircuts or haircuts I've had in my life and just how common of an experience that is for for women to stress about our haircut. (laughs) Yeah, women put a lot of weight on the success or failure of a haircut. So much depends on a good haircut in some ways. It does. It really does. So uh, if you don't mind, I I do want to transition back to Dots and Dashes because I like going from the haircut to the chocolate. Oh, sure. So this is one of my favorite poems in Dots and Dashes. There used to be, um, on the first floor of the Pentagon, a beautiful chocolate store. And uh, my husband was at the Pentagon for about two years, and frequently I would beg him to bring me chocolate because I just thought it was so amazing. But his joke was always that on, on the first floor, along with the chocolate store, there was a flower store and a jewelry store. And he used to say that these places sold all the products that a husband needed to purchase when he'd really messed up at home. So I just was entranced by this chocolate store. I just thought it was so strange to have such a place in the Pentagon. So this poem is a sonnet, and it's called From the Pentagon. He brings me chocolate from the Pentagon, dark chocolates shaped like tanks and fighter jets, milk chocolate tomahawks, a bonbon like a Kirsch grenade, mint chocolate bayonets. He brings me chocolate ships, a submarine descending in a chocolate sea, a drone unmanned and filled with hazelnut praline. He brings me cocoa powder, like chocolate blown to bits, or chocolate squares of pepper heat. Or if perhaps we fought, he brings a box of truffles home, missiles of semi-sweet dissolving on the tongue. He brings me glocks and chocolate mines, a tiny transport plane, a bomb that looks delicious in its cellophane. That's just amazing. I just love the imagery of the chocolate with those destructive, um, in those destructive shapes. And I think one of the things that the poem does is try to navigate um, some of my discomfort with the ways that war and the military are eroticized, uh, kind of the sensual treatment that we often bring to our examination of war. 
So I think the poem handles my anxieties in a, in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way, mm-hmm. but definitely that tension between love, between eros and death, Thanatos, sort of playing out with all these delicious pieces of chocolate that are shaped like weapons of war. Wow. Well, the final poem that, that um, we would like you to read is from Stateside, and uh, this is the poem that, that um, introduced us to you. Uh, so it's the one that... that uh, when, when we heard about you and that you were coming, uh, our creative director uh, sent me this poem and said, we got to get her here this, <laughs> um, because it's, it's just an, um, very moving. So if you wouldn't mind reading Secure for C. Yeah, and I'll just say a lot of the poems in Stateside take as their inspiration military terminology. I find the language of the military really interesting. So much of it suggests metaphor. Uh, and so this term, secure for sea, is sort of the idea of what happens before you go out to sea, the, the kinds of preparations that you make on board a vessel to, to secure everything, anything that could bang about or jostle loose um, when the ocean is rough. But the term is also used to speak about the kind of things that families do when they're preparing for a sailor to get underway. So this is secure for sea. It means the movable stays tied. Lockers hold shut. The waves don't slide a metal box across the decks or scatter screws like jacks. The sea, like a rebellious child that wrecks all tools which aren't fastened tightly or fixed. At home, we say secure when what we mean is letting go of him. And even if we're sure he's coming back, it's hard to know. The farther out a vessel drifts, will contents stay in place or shift? Wow. Are there any that you would like to add that, um, that we didn't ask you to read? Let me see if there's one there's more. That you... So this last poem is written in a French form called A Villanelle. And so when I read it, you'll hear that there are certain lines that repeat over and over again. And there's also an interlocking rhyme scheme. So villanelles are often used for subjects that are obsessive or for problems that don't have solutions. Um, And for me, that sort of describes the experience of sitting through a deployment, that it can be an obsessive experience, and it certainly often feels like a problem without a solution. So this is the long deployment. For weeks, I breathe his body in the sheet and pillow. I lift a blanket to my face. There's bitter incense paired with something sweet, like sandalwood left sitting in the heat or cardamom rubbed on a piece of lace. For weeks, I breathe his body. In the sheet, I smell anise, the musk that we secrete with longing, leather and moss. I find a trace of bitter incense paired with something sweet. Am I imagining the wet scent of peat and cedar, Ood, impossible to erase. For weeks I breathe his body in the sheet, crushed pepper, although perhaps discreet, difficult for someone else to place. There's bitter incense paired with something sweet. With each deployment I become an esthete of smoke and oak, patchouli fills the space for weeks. I breathe his body in the sheet until he starts to fade, made incomplete, a bottle almost empty in its case. There's bitter incense paired with something sweet. And then he's gone. Not even the conceit of him remains, not the resinous space. For weeks, I breathed his body in the sheet. He was bitter incense, paired with something sweet.
Thank you. We were talking about the sense of smell and the the power of the sense of smell and that. Um, We we noticed that in a couple of your poems, actually. And um, yeah, I, uh, I'm a passionate collector of perfume, and I won't tell you how many bottles of perfume I have, <laughs> but I, I often use perfume as a teaching tool in the class. Um, it can be a great way to write poems about memory or a particular place or a particular person because our sense of smell is a bridge to so many different parts of our thinking. So, yeah, I like to sneak in a, a scented poem whenever I can because because often writers privilege the sense of sight and we forget about um, something as evocative and powerful as the sense of smell. Yeah, wow. Well, Jean Debro, thank you so, so much for the thank time you. you've spent with us and um, for reading your poetry for us. It's such a treat to have the poet uh, right here with us reading her poetry and getting your sense of what inspired you to write the poetry and also your interpretation as well. So well, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks. Today's show was written and produced by Troy Tuttle, Dave Blanks, and me, Megan Hayes. Our sound engineer is Dave Blanks, with assistance from Wes Craig. Our web team is Pete Montaldi, Alex Waterworth, and Derek Wyckoff. Research assistance comes from Elizabeth Wall, and video and photo support come from Garrett Ford and Marie Freeman. Our theme song was written and performed by Derek Wyckoff of Naked Gods. Our podcast studio is dedicated to Greg Cuddy. Special thanks to Stephen Dubner for the inspiration, advice, and moral support. Sound Effect is a production of the University Communications Team at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. For Sound Effect, I'm Megan Hayes.